Well, good morning, Community Church. Whether you are with us here in Mount Pleasant, whether you're joining us in Alma or online, we are so glad uh, to be together worshiping our Father this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to kick back into our elementary series. It was a series that got started while we were still meeting online, uh, but last week, Pastor Alan talked about the work of the church, uh, and we're going to just pick up right where he left off, even though we're jumping back into a series, because discipleship, which is what this elementary series is all about, is the work of the church. It's for us, as those who call ourselves Christ followers, to, to grow in looking and thinking and acting more like Jesus and then helping other people to do the same. And so I want to start this morning by a show of hands if you'll let me know if any of these questions relate to you. Uh, and if you're joining online or in Alma, don't skip out on this. Uh, when you were in high school, did you feel busy? Did you feel stressed out? And if you're there right now, you can answer. Okay, how about uh, when you went to college or when you started your first job, did you feel busy and stressed out? Okay, how about if you added some kids to the mix? If you're married and having children, busy, stressed out? How about if you took a promotion or changed jobs that required you to do some new learning? Busy, stressed out? Okay, so here's the big one. Every time you took one of those steps in your life, did you have a moment where you looked back at the place you just came from and went, <laughs> I thought I was busy back then. I find that in every stage of my life, as I take these steps forward, this phenomenon is true. I look back and I think, I thought I was busy then. I'm really busy now. And it seems like for folks that I start to talk to in high school and college nowadays, it's even more elevated than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago, that the stress, the busyness, the, the need to produce is even greater and greater. It's ever-present in the way we speak and in our vocabulary. Now, tell me if you know how this conversation goes. You bump into a friend at the store or you're walking down the street somewhere and you say, hey, how's it going? What's the two answers you get? I'm good or I'm really busy. And we've done this thing where we've glorified busyness and we started to equate it with productivity, with uh, success, with having purpose even. But I don't want to get the wrong idea. When, when you hear me talk about busyness as a problem, as stress as a problem, I'm not going to spend the next 25 minutes telling you to like go enjoy a life of leisure. Because as we're going to see this morning, work and being productive and being fruitful is critical to the kingdom of God. But when we take that work and that productivity and make it our focus and our aim, not only is it unhealthy for us, it actually goes against the word of God. And this isn't something that's unique to like the culture, and we as church folk get to be exempt from this, Right? Because some of the folks that I know who are the most stressed out, the most full of busyness, the most full of anxiety and worry, are ministry people. And they're church people. And they're servants. And the reason they get this way is because they justify it by saying, well, I'm working for Jesus. And if our pastors are not so great at this, it's not a good sign for the rest of us. There's even studies that say nearly a thousand pastors a month are leaving ministry. A thousand pastors a month. It's crazy. 
So over this series, these first three weeks that we started with, prior to coming back together, we looked at uh, three other tools. The first one was this matrix. Do you guys remember? Kind of looked like this, invitation and challenge. And we learned that each of us have a bent, a disposition to either be more invitational, where we want to have relationship and we want to have harmony and we want to bring people in and help them feel welcome, or we have a bent towards challenge, where we say, we want to help you realize all that God has for you. I'm going to push your buttons a little bit and push your boundaries. And we also learned about the learning circle where there's these moments of time where the kingdom of God is ready to just break in. We call those kairos moments. And in order for us to fully engage with those, we have to answer these two questions of what is God saying to me and what am I going to do about the thing that God's telling me? And then the third week, Pastor Wally talked about the triangle and this whole idea that we live life as disciples of Christ in three dimensions. And if any of these get out of balance, it's not all that God has for us. And so we have this upward dimension with the Father where we're, we're studying his word, we're praying, we're engaging in worship. And this inward dimension where we have the church, we have fellowship, we have community, we have folks that care for us and hold us accountable. And then this outward dimension where it's folks that are far from God. It's folks that don't know the love of Christ, and we want to engage with those people as well and tell them about God and bring them into community. And what I want to do this morning for the fourth week of this elementary series is to give us a biblical framework for work and rest that allows us to be productive but have good margin. And so I want to take us back to the very beginning of Scripture to look at what God's original design for work and rest looked like. It's a bit different than the way we think about it now. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, towards the end of verse 26, is where we'll start, and we'll, we'll hop through there a little bit. So verse 26 starts this way. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they'll rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array, and by the seventh day God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from the work of creating all that he had done. We see this account of creation in Genesis that God creates this man, Adam, and this woman, Eve, and he makes them in his own image, and he gives them this whole laundry list of stuff to do, right? Be fruitful, multiply, rule over the birds and the fish and the, everything that crawls around the ground, over the plants, and take care of all the earth. In short, he gives them the job of all jobs. Nothing like it has ever two people been responsible for. Genesis 2.15 says, He put them in the garden to work and to care for it. And so we see right from the get-go, from the moment of creation, God gives people a job to do. Have babies, fill the earth, care for the creation, everything that the Lord has made. But be present with me. We see in this account of Adam and Eve in the garden that God would come and he would walk with them in the evening. He would speak with them. But what happens? 
next. God gives him this huge, immense job. And he says, oh yeah, (laughs) rest. On the very first day of life, the full day of life, the seventh day of creation for Adam and Eve, rest. And because Adam and Eve only know God's presence, they only know his direction, his leading in life, when God rests, they rest with him. And it, it makes me, like, cringe a little bit, right? I'm so wrapped up in this way of living that's like, go do. But God gives him this amazing thing to do. Oh, oh, wait, rest first. And I find myself literally asking the question as I prepared for this, rest from what? I mean, no joke. Adam and Eve are literally dust on the ground 24 hours ago. How hard could they possibly have worked? But this is where my modern lens of thinking gets me all twisted around. Because I think about rest as being something that I look forward to at the end of being productive. But God has this whole different picture of rest for Adam and Eve. And it's the same thing that he calls us to. See, for God, rest is the starting place. Because when you think about what God called Adam and Eve to on that first day, it's, it's the heart of God. He's saying, be with me. And I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I have to imagine that, that God is like just pouring into them his vision for all of this creation that he's given them to, be, to take care of, right? This is what I want the world to look like. This is what you're going to do in the garden. This is how you have children. And this is what you teach them as you go. And they're just sitting in God's presence and hearing God's heart for what he wants them to do. And it's God just saying, here's everything I'm about to send you off into, and then he propels them into work. Because they've got a whole lot to do. But first they rest. This is before sin ever enters the world that God says, no, 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 rest is the starting place. It's not the finish line. And if there's any doubt in your mind about how serious God takes this rest thing, you just have to look at the commandments. God talks about the Sabbath, how you set it apart and keep it holy, this day of rest onto the Lord. And it's right there next to don't kill people, don't commit adultery, honor your God, have rest. It's no joke to him. Now that we've got some foundations to work from, I want to introduce you to our principle for the day. And we call it a semicircle. And the shape of the semicircle comes from this idea. Imagine you've got a string, and you've got a weight on the end of it. And you treat it like a pendulum. And it just swings back and forth. And the shape that it makes is this semicircle. And it's to represent the rhythms of rest and work. Now, just like everything else we've looked at, the the triangle, the circle, the grid, there's nothing special about a shape, right? You can draw a whole bunch of them. There's nothing about it. But it's memorable, right? It helps you latch on to the principle of rest and work. And so when we think about this kind of rest that God calls us to, the kind of rest that God made for Adam and Eve, it was this with God, attention and affection directed towards him, vision coming from him, kind of rest. And for the purposes of of today, we're going to call that rest abiding. It's this being with God type of rest. 
Now, if you think about the pendulum again, when you, you have a weight and you drop it, it swings in the opposite direction from which you let it go. And so the opposite of rest in this case is work, but it's not just the kind of work that maybe pays your bills. It's this kingdom work that God calls you into, and the result of that work needs to be fruit. And so for this morning, we're going to call this fruitfulness. It's this with God work, and it might not be the thing that you get a paycheck from. It's whatever God has knit into your heart, into your unique makeup that makes you come alive in God. It might be being a part of your family and raising your kids. It might be being a light in your workplace. It might be being the best possible student that you can be. Whatever your season, there is a fruitful work that God wants to do in and through you. And in between these two extremes of abiding and fruitfulness, there's two other seasons that we can find ourselves in. There's times when we move out of abiding and towards fruitfulness, and those are times of growth. And then if the pendulum swings the other way, from times of bearing fruit towards abiding, those are seasons of pruning. And we'll spend more time talking about these, but if this feels a bit more like farming than discipleship, um, you'll understand in a second. Let's look at John chapter 15 verse 1 through 8. And Jesus is telling his disciples and the people that are listening to him a parable. And it's about a gardener who's tending his vines. And it goes like this. I am the vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And so neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so this scene of a a gardener working his vineyard would have been something that would have been common to the disciples of Jesus' day. They'd see this as they walked along the road or traveled from town to town. Uh, But if you're like me and your base level knowledge of growing grapes is pretty low, uh, let's do a little How to Grow Grapes 101. So new grapevines are generally started from cuttings of existing vines. And if you were taking those cuttings, you would put them individually in some kind of container and you would fertilize them and water them and care for them like they were your own little child. And as they start to root and grow and take a leaf, they would be transplanted into a vineyard. And they would plant entire sections of new grapes. And what would happen is during the first two to three years of those new grapes being in the vineyard, they would not be allowed to bear fruit. So anytime a flower would start to come up or a grape would start to form, the vine dresser, the gardener, would go with the shears and go and take it off. Because in that first two to three years, the roots of the vine aren't strong enough to support the fruit. And if they would just be left to their own devices, the vine would bear fruit, it would get weight on the end of it, and the fruit would literally break the vine off and kill it. And so for three years, it's just left, cut back, left, and cut back. 
until the roots are strong. And after the two years, the branches are allowed to grow and fruit as normal. And then harvest time. They come and they take the grapes. And not just where the grapes are, but anything extra that isn't needed, they cut back. So that during the time when the grapes aren't growing, the roots are being strengthened. All the extra energy and resources from the vine are being pushed back down into the roots instead of growing. And there's this pattern that we see from the parable that mirrors this, right? So Jesus spends the whole time saying, abide in me, abide in me, be with me, remain in me, hear from me, attend to me. And so we have this abiding season where where God wants to have your attention. He wants to speak over your life and prepare you for something of growing and fruit bearing. And then he says, if you do this abiding work, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to do the things of the kingdom. You're going to do the works that I'm calling you to. And it's going to manifest itself in ways that move the kingdom forward. But what happens is after you bear fruit, that the gardener, God, is going to prune you back. Not because you don't need to grow or bear fruit anymore, but because because you need to be more fruitful in the future. And so you need new vision. You need new attention from God. You need to spend new time with me and hear the new call on your life. But if you've noticed that the parable doesn't say anything about growing. The parable doesn't say anything about growing. Why would Jesus leave out growing? We love growing. We love to see the spring and the plants and the flowers. We love to learn and develop and make things come alive in our own lives. Why in the world would Jesus skip the growing part? I think it's because growth is assumed. That if all the conditions are right, if the vine has been cultivated, if it's been cared for, if it's been provided the right resources, and the conditions are right, of course it'll grow. Because healthy, living things grow. And so Jesus doesn't need to say that it's out there. He just assumes that if we're doing the work of abiding, if we're doing the work of attending to God, then of course growth is going to happen. But here's the thing is, we like to see growth even if the conditions aren't right. I see this all the time as I parent my kids. I have all these aspirations and dreams for my children, right? I want them to love the Lord. I want them to be kind. I want them to be compassionate. I want them to find a purpose and something that just brings them alive in God. But if instead of creating the right conditions for God to do that work in them, I focus on trying to produce that myself in them, I become this like legalistic, controlling, crazy person who's more worried about the outcomes of behavior than what's happening in the heart of my kids. It's only when I spend time with them and listen to their many words and their stories and their hopes and dreams and fears and worries and cares and then can gather all that stuff up and point them towards this God who loves them way more than I could even imagine and create the conditions of showing them how much God cares for them and pointing them to him that that fruit will come in God's time, not in my time. But there's something that we need to know about the difference between fruitfulness and growth. 
Because it's really easy for us sometimes to think that they're the same thing. Particularly because we just love growing. Especially in the church. We love to learn our scripture. We love to learn about the first century that Jesus lived in and the culture and the meanings of things. We love to learn the languages that the Bible was in. We love to learn all sorts of obscure little details to make us feel really good about how much we know. And we get kind of twisted where we think that the knowing is the end. But when it comes to discipleship and and becoming more like Jesus, just knowing without applying is like we spent all summer talking about how how knowledge and wisdom are not the same thing. How, How knowledge is understanding, but wisdom is application. And it's the same thing here that we can go into seasons of growth, and if we think that growth is the end game, we're cutting ourselves short. Because it's only when we apply the lessons we learn into real life that we can bear fruit. But bearing fruit is this process that requires stuff from us. It requires energy, it requires our resources, our time, our attention. And it's just as true for us as Christ followers, as it is for a vine or a plant or a tree. We can't grow forever because all of those resources are, are, in, are finite. They're not infinite. We can't grow forever. We can't bear fruit forever because we just run out of stuff. We run out of time. We run out of energy. We run out of even grace for a season where we're like, I'm 100% in on this. I'm going to serve the Lord in this. And then God's grace just runs out on stuff sometimes, where you're like, that was really good for me then, but it's not great for me now. God's calling me out of something. And we can occasionally try and resist the natural rhythm of the rest and work. And so to speak, we can like try and hold the pendulum over here, right? where we're like, I'm just going to hold that sucker up in the air in growing and fruitfulness. I'm going to bear fruit and bear fruit and bear fruit and bear fruit. Have you ever had like a crab apple off a wild tree? Nasty. Like there's nothing good about that tree that just grows and grows and grows. But what happens is it, it takes stuff out of us. And so if you've been sitting here and you're like, I don't know about this whole fruitfulness thing, like that that doesn't really ring true for me. I don't feel so fruitful lately. It could be because you've just neglected allowing yourself to come to an abiding season of getting fresh vision from the Lord that somehow you've like let yourself become an overgrown vine that you can't bear the weight of the fruit that you're trying to produce anymore. There's just not enough strength to carry the load. And so in in whatever case, whether God's called you out of a season of fruitfulness or you're just like, I've just overgrown myself, I've overextended, the thing that has to happen is pruning. And I don't make any claims about having a green thumb. Uh, My wife is way more better at keeping things alive than I am, uh, children and plants. Um, But I do know a thing or two about pruning. That's like my jam when it comes to landscaping. Give me the hedge clippers, give me the shears, anything that cuts stuff down, like I'm there. But several years ago, we had one of these warm, wet springs and warm, wet summers, and uh, all of our landscaping just went bonkers, growing like crazy. We're like, oh, this looks really nice. This is great. It's green, it's lush, it looks amazing. 
And then fall comes around and school and sports and kids and activities got in the way. And the next thing you know, there's snow on the ground. And we didn't do any pruning. I was like, ah, oh, one season. What's it going to hurt? Nothing. It's going to be fine. Sure enough, everything comes back to life in the spring. And all of these shrubs around the front of our house are growing, but they're only turning green at about the last six inches of a three-foot-tall hedge. And they're only getting tiny little flowers out at the end, and then the two weeks later, the flowers are gone. And the whole heart of the plant looks like a bundle of sticks that you could have set on fire with a match. And it just become overgrown. And so we got through that season of growing, and in the fall, we were like, all right, time to do some pruning. And we did what felt like almost an extreme thing, and we just hacked it back to almost nothing. And I'm kind of looking at my wife, and I'm like, are we killing it all? But sure enough, winter came, and spring, and everything came back, and everything came back in full health. And there was no stickiness. It was all leaves and green and new. See, nobody likes pruning. Even pruning hedges. Like, don't get me wrong. That's the worst part is cleaning up after that job, right? It's the worst part of landscaping. But in our own lives, it's even worse. Because when you get the shears out of stuff in your life and you start cutting back, it feels like an injury. It feels like a pain where you're like, no, I really want to be involved in this. I really want to serve in this place. What do you mean I need to cut back from that? What do you mean that's not good in this season? It feels like something is going terribly wrong in our own lives when we cut that back. It feels like damage. But what it represents in our own lives and in the lives of plants and trees and shrubs, it's actually care. It's purpose. It's intentionality. It's the hand of a gardener that knows what's best. It's the hand of God in our lives who knows what's best to actually prune things back. Because without this unnatural intervention, what happens is we can just become like an overgrown tree where we grow and grow and grow, but instead of having strength, our strength decreases and decreases and decreases. We need to respond to the call of God because he is a loving gardener. Even in the parable, Jesus tells us when we bear fruit, God, who is the gardener, he actually prunes us back so that we can bear more fruit in the future. Because I can tell you from experience, if we don't take the initiative to partner with God in our pruning, he will surely do it on our behalf. Because he cares for us. And I'd be almost uh, remiss in this moment if we didn't take some observations from the current things that are happening around us, right? Whether it's by our own choice or not, uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus, has just systematically like, cut off the ability for us to fill our lives with activity. We just can't do all the things that we would normally be able to do. And I know that this is like stirring up all sorts of things in people, anxiety and worry about the unknown and the future. But it would be silly for us not to take away the lessons that God might be trying to teach us in this time. I know for myself, this season of pruning, this scaled back activity has driven me to God's word to a greater level than ever before. 
I know it's given me more time to spend with my family and give them more of my undivided attention. And I know above everything else, it's shown me my deep need for Jesus every single day of my life. Because I seriously don't know how people who don't know the Lord cope right now with all of the unknowns that are out there. And my hope is that while God is doing this pruning, he's preparing me for a season of growth. He's preparing me for a season of fruit bearing so that as things start to come back to life, so to speak, he's got me right where he wants me to go forward. As I close, I want to go back to this questions that Pastor Aaron posed about the learning circle several weeks ago. What are you saying to me, God? And I want to ask it in the context of of this place where we're at this morning. I would ask you, what is God saying to you about the rhythms of your life? What is God saying to you about your balance of rest and work? And the bigger question, and probably more important one even, is what am I going to do about that thing that God's speaking to me? Because hearing the voice of the Lord is great, but if we don't take initiative and act on it with his timing, then we're missing out on all that God has for us. So I just invite us to close your eyes, bow your head, just quiet of your own heart. Would you really see God in those two things? What are you saying to me, Lord, and what am I going to do about it? And in just a moment, we'll continue worship together.